Reading is Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil ferment and stink, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise person's heart goes to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks along the road, his heart lacks sense, and he shows everyone he is a fool. If the ruler's anger rises against you, don't leave your post, for calmness puts great offenses to rest. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, an error proceeding from the presence of the ruler. The fool is appointed to great heights, but the rich remain in lowly positions. I have seen slaves on horses, but princes walking on the ground like slaves. The one who digs a pit may fall into it, and the one who breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. The one who quarries stones may be hurt by them. The one who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen its edge, then one must exert more strength. However, the advantage of wisdom is that it brings success. If the snake bites before it is charmed, then there is no advantage for the charmer. The words from the mouth of a wise person are gracious, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words from his mouth is folly, but the end of his speaking is evil madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No one knows what will happen. And who can tell anyone what will happen after him? The struggles of fools weary them, for they don't know how to go to the city. Woe to you, land, when your king is a youth and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, land, when your king is a son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the roof caves in. And because of negligent hands, the house leaks. A feast is prepared for laughter, and wine makes life happy, and money is the answer for everything. Do not curse the king even in your thoughts, and do not curse a rich person even in your bedroom. For a bird of the sky may carry the message, and a winged creature may report the matter. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jamie. The kids are invited to kids' church with Emily today. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. So says our text for us this morning. This is um, the 10th sermon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, the, uh, of our, let's see, I was trying to think of this. The 10th sermon in our four-part summer series on the book of wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we did Proverbs last summer. We find ourselves in Ecclesiastes this summer and the questions that arises from it and the challenges that come. Um, I was joking with uh, Kim and Emily before the service, the music leaders, about how... Um, We talked about Vin Scully, who passed away last week. We didn't talk about him. We talked about something he said. Um, But uh, he he used to say that, you know, when they would say baseball players wouldn't live up to their potential, he said, we never blame those people who assigned the potential in the first place, Um, which is really like a kind of a true thing. Like, you're going to be great. You're going to be this. And then when the person fails, be like, well, it's all on you. not the person who assigned it all. But I was talking about that because they were asking about the text for today, and I was like, if this sermon isn't that great, it's not my fault, it's the text's fault. Um, 
And it's a rich thing to blame the Bible. Now, uh, we're going to talk about St. Augustine. Yeah, Becca's not impressed. She's like, mm-mm. Matt, make something of this. You assigned the potential, uh, not me. <laughs> um, uh, um, we're going to talk about um, uh, St. Augustine in a second. One of the things, though, uh, the Greek sort of rhetoric at the time that St. Augustine existed in had its own form and its own way of being like um, right and proper. And one of the things he used to say is that the Bible is so obviously a witness to God because it is written so poorly. And yet it displays to us the amazing truth of who God is. Now that's, that's judging by the rhetoric of his times. But I was feeling Augustine today. Um, part of it is because what has happened in Ecclesiastes so far in these previous nine sermons is there's these um, sort of mini lectures, many, many sort of coherent thoughts that sort of make up um, these larger points, this larger scale he's trying to bring. Um, one of the things that the things that appear over and over again first is is that today and in every Sunday I've called him uh, the author Kohelet because that is what the author calls himself in Hebrew, and so there's this idea in each of these in which Kohelet is proclaiming for us that everything is meaningless, is smoke, is vanity, is hevel, and that appears in each of all the chapters, except for this one. Um, also, that what doesn't appear for the, in this one is one of those sort of carpe diem or seize the day or accept the gift passages. It's at this point in the, in the book, it seems as an outside reader from a different time that like he was like, you want wisdom and wisdom comes in the form of Proverbs. So I'll finally give you some Proverbs, but they're not like the Proverbs you know. And so each of the sort of things that Jamie read for us, and thank you for that, Jamie, is, is there... Um, just staggered sort of random thoughts. There's, there's King at the end, and you could may, maybe almost track to the reading we had from last Sunday with King again, um, and then there's uh, Wisdom and Folly shows up, but he almost seems to say contradictory things about Wisdom and Folly compared to what he said in the rest of the book. And so it's at this point um, that I wish I had invited David to preach this Sunday, and I could come and hit the last two out of the park, which are great texts. Um, but uh, it's a challenging sort of thing because they're all sort of individualized thoughts. And so what I thought I'd do, which I've done every Sunday, is try to find another way to introduce the book of Ecclesiastes to us before we dive into the text. I'll walk through those. And there's, and there's sort of one big truth in there, I think, about falsifying reality, how fools falsify reality. But before we get to that, um, I wanted to share one of, the, one of the quotes that's been hanging over my head is, is sort of we approach Ecclesiastes. Last week was Pascal, um, and I love that one about Pascal, about how we never find contentment in the present, and we're content to rob from the future or from the past, but that we never truly live. That struck me as very sort of close to Ecclesiastes. Um, uh, the one for today, this is, this is what uh, Kohelet says at the end of the book, is that, that these teachings are like a goad which is what this is, and it's, uh, although it's a nice looking one, I can't imagine most shepherds had one this uh, ornate, but um, uh, it's something to poke, it's, it's like a stick with nails in it, uh, that the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to prod us forward. Um, that's what the frame narrator says, and like I've said, I think that that's the key to the book, is what the frame narrator says, that's two Sundays from now in 12, but we have ended every Sunday with that teaching, um, that this is the shepherd's tool to prod and correct and to bring about. 
And one of the challenges is, as we've thought about that, as I've tried to suggest, what does it mean to see that as the tool of the good shepherd, whom we know as Jesus? How is this the tool of the good shepherd that prods and corrects us? Um, how is that what we find in this book in its frame? Um, but the quote that I had for today is about pain, too. It's on the back of the bulletin, the shorter part of it, from C.S. Lewis. It's about how God uses pain to instruct us. He writes, But this intrinsic pain or death in mortifying the usurped self is not the whole story. Paradoxically, mortification, though itself is a pain, is made easier by the presence of pain in context. This happens, I think, principally in three ways. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-well as long as all seems to be well with it. Now, air and sin both have this property, that the deeper they make their victims sus suspect their existence, they are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every, knows man that some, every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. And pain is not only immediately recognizable evil, but evil impossible to ignore. We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities, and anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite food if they didn't know what they were eating will admit that we can even ignore our pleasure. But pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is, is megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If the first and lowliest operation of pain shatters the illusion that all is well, the second shatters the illusions that that which we have, whether it is good or bad in itself, is our own and enough for us. Everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God in interruption. St. Augustine says somewhere, God wants to give us something, but we cannot receive it because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. Or as a friend of mine has said, we regard as a, uh, God as an airman regards his parachute. It is there for emergencies, but he hopes he'll never have to use it. Now, God, who has made us, knows what we are and that our happiness lies in him. Yet we will not seek it in him as long as he leaves us with any other resort where it can even possibly be looked for. While what we call our own life remains agreeable, we will not surrender it to him. What then can God do in our interests but make our own life less agreeable to us and take away the plausible sources of false happiness? It is just here where God's providence seems at first to be the most cruel, that the divine humility, that stooping down of the highest, most deserves praise. What Lewis is, is, is prescribing or talking about in this quote is how in the book of Ecclesiastes, he sees ourselves numbing ourselves to the reality of the world. That as long as things are good and content, we can pretend like life always works out. It's my own life. One of the chief things I've, I've tried to say about Ecclesiastes when asked why we would spend so much time in this um, dark and drearsome book is it shatters our illusions. 
it shatters that there's another place in which we can reside, whether it be in our stuff, in our security, our scripts, our jobs, how life profits for us other than in God. And for Lewis, what he sees is that pain, while um, painful, uh, um, it, it shatters for us the illusions that there is a safe place for us to stay. And I think that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is hopefully doing for us as we learn and hear from it. That life has this, uh, that what the teacher, Kohelet, is pointing out for us is that um, we too easily rush and cling to these other things. And he is that goad, that pointy stick, which causes pain for us so that we can awaken to the reality of what God is doing in the world, doing to us, and that we would find our pleasure there. Going back to St. Augustine, I said uh, we would use one other phrase from him. We started Ecclesiastes with this phrase, because God has made us for ourselves, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Because God has made him for himself, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. If you read the confessions in which this book appears, Augustine sees himself oftentimes as almost dissolving, as fading away. That, that phrase, smoke, that life to him is like this smoke that he's trying to grasp onto, and his restlessness is that quest to grasp it. But the solution for him isn't finding the right answer to the quest, but resting in him. And this is where we get that, that idea from Ecclesiastes, um, those carpe diem passages that we've heard, where it's, it's, he commends to us to eat and to drink and to rest, that we can find in these places. And so, and as Lewis said, he says that we have hands too full to receive the gifts that God wants to give us. If I could design my own life, it would mainly be just up until the right, uh, a, a graph, um, um, I don't know, that's, that's something with the movie JFK too, uh, back and to the left. Um, I think if you haven't seen that, don't see it. Um, but anyways, up and to the right, my, my life would be on a graph, up and to the right, and that would be all of it. And it makes it hard for us to hear something in that. And so we um, have these restless ways in which we go through life and we seek rest in him. Now, one of the challenges, I think, of the modern world is, and, and, and it's why pain, what Lewis says, might be more important than other eras, is, is we have so many ways to, to make ourselves numb to the world. We carry around a device of endless entertainment that whenever we feel sad or lonely or distraught, we can just text someone. We can do some more work. We can watch cat videos on YouTube, which I don't think anybody does anymore, at least until somebody sends you one, and then the algorithm feeds them to you forever. Um, I mean, that's, that's the thing, is we have an algorithm of things that make it so that we are never alone and bored. We can swipe through life. We can uh, doom scroll if that's our thing too. We can just sort of live in this place in which we're never actually moving past our restlessness to rest in him. And the hard part is, is, is that in some degrees, these feel good. Um, they, they give us some dopamine to get through the day, but it's a dopamine that's not earned in the way that we would have contentment in life, but in one that just um, numbs us for the time. And then we pick it up again whenever we're bored. Um, 
So if you thought Ecclesiastes was depressing, I guess the start of the sermon's worse. Um, uh, but that's the way the world is today, is that we live in these sort of self-numbed cocoons as much as we want to and can, and it takes something to shatter that for us. That, I think, is Kohelet's mission with this, with this goad that God has given him to use to work on our souls, is to pop the bubbles that we have, to wake us up to the realities of life, and to bring us to awareness and confronting reality. Um, God can use us as his people when we actually confront reality as it is. And yet so often we run from those realities. Um, and so it's good news that we are invited into this book and this story this day. Um, so so that's, that's the start for today in, in, in the ways in which we can, we can sort of have um, that good news for us. What Jamie read for us begins with this famous phrase, as dead flies give perfume and bad smell, so little follies outweighs wisdom and honor. Um, this, is, this is where I think, I told you that Havel, um, smoke, vapor, meaningless doesn't show up in this passage, but I do think that what happens with perfume is similar to what happens with smoke and vapor. And so as, as Kohelet has, has sought in life in, uh, with this, our, our one sermon analogy or instrument, to, to try and grasp life, here he comes again to sort of think about what it is to have something vaporous, right? That, that this, uh, uh, this thing is actually designed, we just put water in it, I think, here, but it's designed to be a diffuser of, of uh, lilac or something to help you sleep. I don't know. Um, you can ask Kelly, and she can sell you one. And, and, and uh, <laughs> that's the main point in the sermon series is an ad for this thing. Um, no. Um, that he, he turns again, though, to the idea that, that life has this um, vapor-like quality to it. That even when there's goodness, when you smell perfume, when life has that, what he points out is that one thing can make the whole thing turn. For me, and I was trying to think of ways that you could describe this without just being crass, is it's like vacation is coming, but you have a toothache. Like you have an all-expense-paid vacation to somewhere, but you know that you need a root canal when you get home because of the pain that's in your tooth. Like, you, in reality, like, this is everything great, right? Like, you're going to where you want to go, you have the time, you have the money, you have everything set aside, and you would think all of that goodness might be over to, able to, to compensate, to make you forget for a moment that your tooth hurts. And yet for anybody, I mean, most of us are, are at some point or have or will have an intense sort of tooth pain, it doesn't work that way. One tooth in pain can outweigh a whole positive vacation. And that's so Kohelet writes, is, is, that, is that one dead fly, as it, as it rots in your perfume, can spoil the whole thing. But what he continues from that, I think, is interesting because, because we, I think, like to think that good wisdom and right living and this stuff can overwhelm the little errors we make along the way. But what he says is so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. 
that, that as he's looked about life under the sun and all this, is that, is that he finds that in the same way that, that your vacation is ruined because of a toothache or because of a, uh, the way that um, a bad smell can overwhelm what's ever good that's supposed to come out of that thing, so too a little bit of folly can be the thing that fouls up the whole thing. It can tip the scales in another way. See, his wisdom sayings are not like other wisdom sayings. They would say um, that, that we, can, we can build something that outweighs the other thing. But for Kohelet, he says, you know, just a little bit of that can tear down all that's good. And I think that's the challenge. Um, I think we see that in the world and in our lives, is that, is that if I can follow God in this massive way, give myself to him in whatever ways I see possible, but this corner... This small segment of my life, um, and I'm talking consciously here, although I think we can do it consciously, but I think consciously some of us can say, this place is my little folly. And this little folly will not outweigh all the other stuff. And yet it does. Because we have to hide it. We have to sweep it under the rug. We have to wonder if, if it's a certain type of thing when we can get it again. Or we go to places already sort of numbed by it. Whatever it is. I mean, you pick a lot of different things that we have in the world. But it's this area of folly that's mine. And it's so small. And yet it outweighs the other things. Leads to frustration and anger when it's not received or done that way. So Kohelet begins with, with a proverb saying that, that, that messes us up. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Um, my father, when he was growing up, uh, picked up something with his left hand, and the gra his grandmother sh shook it and said, we want no lefties in this family. No lefties. He's actually right-handed today. It might have just been an air thing. But I always wonder where that comes from, that this, this left-handed sort of thing. But, but here, um, in, in, in much of Scripture, right and left-handed are, are, are sort of used to stand in to the right is good, and to the left is folly and evil. And so you could see how people might get like left-handedness mixed up in, in that way. And so the left hand, and, and it, it's funny because it's, uh, I, my initial tendency was to be like, oh yeah, that seems like something we would have done in the Old Testament. And yet Jesus talks about in Matthew 25 on that great day when the shepherd will put the good on his, and yeah, I was like, oh. So it's just a typology that, that if you're, I'm not left-handed, but if you're left-handed, have that you're stuck with in life is, I guess. Um, but anyways, he's, the heart of the wise is kind to the right, but the left um, to the fool. And he's using these in sort of that typological way in which left-handedness is always going the one way. We heard this in the psalm this morning, not this exact analogy, but sort of that, that there are people who, who instruct themselves towards the Lord and his teaching. And then there are those people who sit. There's a great rhythm to Psalm 1, but it's um, uh, they sit, uh, they walk with, they stand with, and then they sit with these despisers. Which is, funny enough, I think how my foolish behavior works. is I'm walking somewhere, and it's like, we're just conversing. We're on the road together, um, whatever behavior it is. And then at some point, I'm like, let's stand and talk. Um, and, then, and then before you know it, you're sitting <laughs> in, in your house 
your place of resting, where you are, is in the place of your foolishness. Um, Sometimes it's so enticing you just jump to sitting, but oftentimes it's like, oh, I just dabbled on a walk. Oh, I just stood with them, but I didn't stay there that long. I left when it got crazy, and then before you know it, you sit, and you're the crazy person who's enticing other people into these patterns or sins or dysfunctions. Um, but even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show some everyone how stupid they are. Um, this is, uh, I think, an interesting teaching for Kohelet because what he he's kind of questioned wisdom and foolishness. But here he's trying to say that fools eventually expose themselves in public. This is why I think even that idea, this little corner sin of my life is fine. Eventually that becomes exposed. Whether you're caught or whether somebody else is like, you're off today and you know why you're off today, but they don't. Like eventually these people reveal themselves. Um, later he's going to talk about how the fool doesn't know his way home in the city how the fool is lost. But in some sense, our, our foolishness becomes exposed to the world in time. Um, uh, and I, I think if, I was an RA for a while. I was trying to think of good analogies for this. This one just came for me. But like I could walk by a dorm room. I was an RA way too long. Um, but I could walk by a dorm room on a Friday night and pretty much tell you how many people were in there, um, where they were sitting, because they're all the same shape. I mean, that's like not... These aren't mansions in Aspen. They're like 10 by 10 cells. But I could guess within reason where they were all sitting and what they were doing. Um, and, and then I could decide whether I wanted to make my life worse by busting them if I had to or ignore it and keep walking. And it varied from time to time what I would actually do. But point being is that like you, you at times, if you've done a job long enough or if you've been in something long enough, you know like when somebody walks in, when somebody walks by, that there's something exposed in that. Um, if you do, uh, if you've ever done a ride along with a police officer, like he'll point things out to you that you miss, um, and oftentimes it's because that they're exposing themselves already along the road. Um, uh, so fools eventually reveal themselves. The next section of teachings: If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. Here, um, Kohelet is, is talking, it's, some translations have king, but it seems like he's talking about um, uh, some sort of minor ruler in comparison to that, but that as the anger rides against you, like, don't leave, but stay in calmness, um, because uh, calmness can lay great offenses to rest. Here, he's trying to say how to navigate sort of these sort of angers that rise against you. Now, it's a challenge because when Kohelet talks about rulers or kings, he's also, also using them as a stand-in for God sometimes. Um, if God's uh, anger rises against you, don't leave your post, but respond in calmness. Um, I th he has a um, jaded view of God, as we've obviously found walking through the, the story, and so he also has a jaded view of rulers as he mixed these ups. But what does it mean to respond in calmness? Um, you know, often when you flee those things fast enough, more trouble comes. And we see this, this one um, Christologically makes me think of Jesus and Pilate, too, is that as Jesus has people's anger rising against him, you see him growing in his power through his calmness and through his own sort of being in that Kohelet then turns to another, there's an evil I've seen under the sun, the sort of air that arises from a ruler, ruler again. Fools are put in many high positions, 
While the rich occupy low ones, I have seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. Um, This is such an interesting one because what he sees here is a great reversal. um, And those of us who read the Gospels have a notion that there is a great reversal coming that is good news. And yet Kohelet sees in here a great reversal that is bad news. And it's a bad news. And there's two things um, I want to say about this, I think. Let's see if I can get them down to two. One is, is the first one is, is that it comes from an heir, right? That a just king might put slaves on horses or that somebody might care for their estate in, an, in a reversal way um, might be a good thing. He's not pondering that. He's pondering that the disorder that happens when somebody does this out of air and ignorance and lack, that leads to this world being disordered as such. But the second thing, and this is, I think, more a temptation in the modern world, is that we think that we are instruments of that promised reversal which Christ promises us in the gospel. That we think it is ours to bring about in reality. As if we could weigh all the scales properly ourselves, looking at everything under the sun, that the wisdom of Matt Shedden See, now you're like, oh, this is a bad idea. Um, could, could decide what's the proper way to narrate and tell this story so that it's all even. And this is, I think, the root of many of our um, political wishes and dreams. You know, it would all go better if everybody just listened to me. Um, I have the right solutions to this. Many of you heard my joke during the past year, but, you know, as a self-trained epidemiologist... I understand how we should respond to the great, uh, you know, this, but this is how the world works. And so the other error that can come from this is that, is that as we hold this intention with the, the promises that Jesus has for us, we think it's ours to bring about. Um, there's one last thing, um, an illustration I have for this. There's a Flannery O'Connor short story called Revelation. It's one of the last ones she wrote as she was uh, coming to terms with her own death. She tells the story about a, a, um, a racist woman, um, but she was a good racist. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is her own thinking, right? That's what she thinks of herself as, right? Like she, she's, she's kind of a good racist, is that she you know, properly sees everyone in their place. And you know, she at one point is, is, is pondering, you know, she, I think she's in the doctor's office when this happens, that if she had to be a poor white, she'd be one of the ones with dignity. She, she disliked white trash as much as she likes black people, or she'd be um, one of the noble black people of her community, but not one of these ones. She was always looking at the world that way. But at the end of the story, she's out in the field by herself at night. Um, she goes out to this field, um, and she has her own sort of revelation. Um, but the, the, the thing that will stay with you from the story is how she sees this reversal playing out. At la- uh, Miss Turpin, Turpin stood there, her gaze fixed upon the ha- highway, all her muscles wriggled until five or six minutes the truck reappeared returning. She waited until it had time to turn into their own road. Then like a monumental statue coming to life, she bent her head slowly and gazed as if through the very mystery down into the 
pig, the pig parlor at the hogs. They had settled into one corner around the old snow who was grunting softly. A red glow suffused them. Then they appeared to pant with a secret life until the sun slipped behind the tree line. Miss Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them as if she was absorbing some additional life-giving knowledge. At last, she lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the side, cutting through the field of crimson and leading like in the extension of a highway into the de descending dust. She raised her hands from the side of the fen in a gesture heretic and profound. A visionary light settled into her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the heaven through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling towards heaven. There were whole companies of white trash cleaned for the first time in their lives, and bands of black people in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs as they marched to heaven. And bringing up the end of the profession was a tribe of people whom she recognized as once as those who were like herself, had always had a little of everything, the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been, for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces, even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was. At length, she got down and turned off the faucet in her slow way on the darkening path to the house. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up. But what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting, Hallelujah. It's a beautiful passage, one you'll think about often. You read the full story, too. Um, but that passage that for her people in this great reversal, what was being melted away was their virtues. She had always seen in her virtues what separated them from the band of people excited to get to heaven and off key. And yet what she found as she looked closer at them was that even their virtues were being burned away. I love the way the crickets turn into that choir at the end. The next teaching, whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits log may be endangered by them. This is uh, uh, one of Kohelet's ways of giving Proverbs is that if you dig a pit through your own air, this is not in the Psalms, Psalm 7, I think, there's a way in which you dig a pit for your enemy and you fall into it. This is just you dig a pit and you're, you're a fool. And this is going back to his idea that chance happens to all of us. You dig a pit, yet you fall in it. Um, you uh, break through a wall and that there's randomly a snake there. And you're quarrying of stones, you're injured by them, and splitting logs that, that, that sort of can injure you. If an axe is dull and its edge is sharpened, more strength is needed, but skill, will bring its, but skill will bring success. Here he has this idea of which and you might want to, to be, bring the equipment to bear on reality, which happens... Second, in the snake bite as well. If a snake bites before it is charmed, the charmer receives no fee. Um, that was, uh, that's a, I, I just like that. If the snake bites before it is charmed, you don't pay the charmer. It's like, eh, this is why you get the money first, charmer. Um, 
that one's translated all sorts of different ways. But point being is that um, you need to have the right mind to use the right utility at the right time. The dull axe one reminds me of a uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, probably uh, made up story, but that he said, you know, if I was given five hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend four sharpening the axe. Um, which is sort of like the way in which wisdom is practiced there. The next section, words. Um, so that, that's about equipping yourself for the right thing. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning of the words are folly, and at the end are wicked madness, and fools multiply words. Uh, this we see in our lives, I think, very often. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell someone else what is, will happen after them? The toil fooies worries them. They do not know the way to town. That fools, and we talked about this a little bit with lying in the past, but, but that we can falsify reality so much with our words that we lose the map that governs our worlds. Um, and we do this willingly and unwillingly at times, that, that we have this way of sort of bringing words about, and this is why we read that passage from Ephesians this morning, which is Paul's concerned about right speech and truthfulness. Because when you begin to make errors around that path, dark things lie. You don't know the way home anymore. You can't navigate your town because you've so misformed reality. This is uh, a quote that I think just, is a beautiful way of talking about what we do at church. One reason why Christians argue so much about which hymn to sing, which liturgy to follow, which way to worship, is that, uh, is that the commandments teach us that bad liturgy eventually leads to bad ethics. You begin by singing some sappy, sentimental hymn, and then you pray some pointless prayer, and the next thing you know, you have murdered your best friend. Um, this is Stanley Harawas, and, and his way of saying that, you know, you begin to, to falsify reality in your worship, and before you know it, you've, you've murdered someone. But I think William Plackard names this in a different way in which we're victim to, too. Christians today often think of their world in the vocabularies of contemporary politics or popular culture. But the Bible offers us an alternative. Those poor folk across town aren't just welfare recipients or even fellow citizens. They're neighbors. That action wasn't just inappropriate behavior or even a crime. It was sin. When we use such a vocabulary, we find ourselves thinking about the world in different ways, and sometimes, at least, we may find common ground with other Christians whom we were divided when our language was only that of contemporary politics. To trust the Bible, to let it define our world, and provide a language of thinking about our world can transform our lives. This is why I push back so hard on the weaponization of the Bible in contemporary politics is because we'll never find common ground with the Christian we disagree with. And the weaponization is, is we've gotten smarter at this. This was written in the 1980s. Now we've meshed contemporary politics and the biblical imagination together in certain spheres, so much so that we can't separate them and tell the difference. Scripture needs to be a word that confronts us and brings us about. It can't be just a weapon in some ways. So the danger of falsifying reality in the past that it can lead us down. Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blesses the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princesses eat at the proper time for strength and not drunkenness. Through laziness, the rafters sag. Because of idle hands, the house leaks. I don't know why that's in bold. Um, uh, but I think it had to do with copy and paste. So if you think I have something profound to say about that last one, 
Um, but here, Kohelet again sees that um, right order prevents certain things. Princes who wake up and drink and feast in the morning are those who idly let the roof of the community, the, the town, the, the city sag because they have lost sense about what the proper time of things are. Fools falsify reality and get lost. Bad princes with bad practices create houses that leak because they no longer have the proper sense. A feast is made for laughy, laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. This one got me. I, I had to think about this one for a long time. Um, in, in, that, in Kohelet's universe, though, it seems just to make sense is that you make feasts so that you can enjoy and seize the day. That wine consumed at the end of the day, you just talked about not consuming it in the morning, is there to make you merry. And that money is the thing that will provide for these moments and glimpses in which we can sit in that space. Under the sun. <laughs> this is his limited frame of seeing these things. Um, but that's where he's at is that he finds that if you have money, you can, you can sort of nego negotiate your time in the ancient world so that you have space for other things. It's somewhat true today. Um, I've talked about that if you're at the airport, the only quiet place you can find is the executive lounge, and you have to have money to be in the executive lounge. Other than that, it's airport CNN all the time, um, and you can't get away from it, or bad music, or whatever. Um, so you could see, even today, Kohelet might be like, you know, the airport's a depressing place. Um, but if you can get to the executive lounge, um, you might find some silence and solace. Um, I don't like his teachings on this, um, but they seem to have a ring of truth to them, too, in some ways. Um, because of the way the world is disordered. And then he ends, do not revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your boredom because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. Here, I, Kohelet, I think, draws us away from, again, that thinking that we can order the world type thing. Your, your idea that in your bedroom you can curse the king and prince and somehow remain immune from that or to think that it won't come out or get back to someone. Um, Time might have better uses than that. Um, and it's, for the final thing, before we read the, the, the frame ending that Kohelet's always reminding us of, it's worth remembering that God connection with the king here. Do not, at the end of the day, or away from church, or whatever space you can, find a way to curse God in your bedroom. Because you're crazy, to think that that won't get back to him. Um, now, I think here Kohelet's going to run up into Psalms and other questions that say, how do we do these things? But, but I would say that, that one of the truths that I found reassuring about the Psalms, thinking about this passage, is that you bring those things to God. You don't use your frustrations in your own isolated way We'll see this when we get to the book of Job next summer too. You bring them to the very face of God because God can handle it. To pretend like you can curse God in the quiet of your bedroom and not bring it before his face. 
so that God might do work with it. God might do work with you through it. But that God will hear it. And we have a choice. God can hear it as if we are talking behind his back. Or God can hear it in the spirit of prayer that the psalmist invites us into. And in that space, um, we find that God meets us there. Uh, Not always in the ways that we would want, but at least we're material at hand to work with in those ways. My own depressions and angsts and whatevers, I think that it's that cutting off that God might be able to do something with that that leads me further and further into darkness and into the hole. But it's bringing it to the light that resides in God's faith, face that gives us something else that might come of those things. So the frame narrator, you now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including everything hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Let us pray. God, you have again instructed us with the teaching of Ecclesiastes. It is like a goad or a pointy stick or a nail for us, that it draws us into realities that we would prefer to be numb to. It points out things that we would prefer to float over and to live our happy lives quietly in a bubble and in our houses with all the products and things which promise to satisfy and to bring us rest. And yet in their prompting, they bring us to Augustine's phrase that we are restless until we rest in you. So God is for us today to hear how we might come to rest in you, confronted with wisdom and folly and rulers and kings. May we be drawn back to your face in confession and in praise so that you may instruct us in this world and that we may follow in your paths in life. We ask all of this in your holy name. Amen.